We're going to look at Titus chapter 3. And we're doing what is good. That's the heading. And you will see that on page 1199. 1199, Titus chapter 3. If you get to the book of Hebrews, you're too far. Keep going beyond Timothy and you come to this just little book. Titus chapter 3. Doing what is good. So this embryonic church, this fledgling company of people are meeting and Paul has to address issues and some of these are applicable to us here tonight. Chapter 3 verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, to show true humility towards all men, all people. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through, Christ, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And in the pursuit of these things, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. I'm sure the Lord will say something of consequence to us uh, tonight. And uh, I just want to very briefly, in about two or three minutes, just to recap uh, what we considered the last time when we were looking at uh, Titus, which was about almost five weeks ago. And we've sort of started and stopped, started and stopped. Um, so in chapter two, the last time you, you will not recall, but... Um, I would hope something would be there. And in chapter 2, we looked in verse 1 that we were challenged to be sound in doctrine. To be sound in doctrine. In other words, the content of our gospel is very important. To be sound in doctrine. And then in verse 2, 
we were also challenged to be sound in faith. And if the first, if you like, is the content so that we are truly Bible people, then the second is the conduct that we are true Christian people. That it's unacceptable for us to live one way on Sunday and to be a contradiction on Monday. That is the unacceptable face of the church or of individual Christian people. So the content that is sound, the conduct is consistent. And how do you articulate that but in the way that you relate and particularly in speech? And so you see again, he comes back to that, and in chapter 2 of verse 7, he says this, In everything set them example by doing what is good. In your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. There you have it, chapter 2 and verse 8. And it's always salutary in our interpersonal relationships that we are like that. There are some people and some churches who feel that once you are sound in doctrine, everything else fits into place. Sadly, it doesn't. Um, In chapter 4 of Colossians and verse 6, it says, Let your conversation be always full of grace. And if it isn't, you should repent of it. Let your conversation be always full of grace. And then there's this lovely phrase, isn't it? Seasoned with salt. So you're not one of these bland believers, but you have bite to you and flavor. The point to, to recapitulate on that is this, that Christianity is not simply about doctrine. There are some churches who emphasize that and stop And it is significantly impaired. What it is about is relationship. Restored relationship with God in Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And the test, the acid test, always is how do we relate to each other. And if that was so easy, these letters would not need to be written. And we wouldn't need to read them. We can get rid of them from the Bible because everything's okay. But we know that it isn't. And all of us need to work harder. That the best relationships that we enjoy in marriage and home, in work and family and church are the ones that we work at. And the ones that are impoverished are the ones that we sit back and do nothing about. So this morning, uh, with our verse for the day, we, we, we did three R's. Uh, we have to work on those all the time and, and they were rejoice, uh, relax and rest. Tonight I give you three more Three hours. Uh, It's the preacher's way. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. I borrow it, the verse here, from verse 1. Remind. Remind the people. That's the apostolic challenge. And then in verses 6 and 8, this is the test, if you like. How do we relate to each other? Verses 6 to 8. And then finally, you see at the end there, Warn about foolish controversies, arguments, quarrels about, quarrels about the law. And so, when were you last rebuked? And when did you last, if ever, rebuke someone, if you dare? That's a dodgy business. To be either the recipient of a rebuke or the the initiator of one. Well, that's it. 
That's the seven. So we know now where, where we're going and what we're going to do. I want to pose a question. And um, I want you to think about this now as the entrance into the passage itself. And here's the question. Uh, let me just use an illustration first, even before the question comes. Well, it, it's up there, isn't it? Yeah, has it come? Yes, it has. Yes, it's here. What is your spirituality? At um, sort of a, like a, you know, one of these drinks party, um, somebody introduced me as the pastor of Long Crenden Baptist Church, and this lady said to me, I'm very spiritual. Now, in evangelical circles, that's a rather impertinent thing to say, as if, well, I'm going to give the best judge of that. But she didn't mean that at all. What she said was, I'm very interested in spirituality. She's not a churchgoer, not particularly interested in God, but she, I'm very spiritual, she said. And she wanted to talk to me. So, here's the question, whether it's a social interaction or here at church, what is your spirituality? Do you think you have one? The term is in vogue. If you start talking to people, get below the surface and you will see that it comes up. And interestingly, both secular and Christian book, books um, are very popular on the issue of spirituality. Why is it so popular? Well, for two reasons. First, it is both a reaction against, as we shall see in a moment, and a search for. It's how we are. It's a reaction against things like materialism, like consumerism, like the computerized technological culture in which we live. But it's also a reaction against institutional religion, arid evangelicalism, saying the right things, but actually on Monday, utterly irrelevant. If it's a reaction to those things, it is also a pursuit or a seeking of something else. Something that gives authenticity. And it comes in various forms. You hear people talk about the new age. Or mystical. Or eastern. Or Celtic worship. Or Taizé. Or orthodox the former vicar in Tame has joined, uh, that was in St. Mary's has joined the Orthodox Church. There are some people of the charismatic movement that have joined the Orthodox Church in the pursuit of a deeper spirituality. Conservative. New evangelicalism. And many more. What is your spirituality? You certainly have one. So whether you talk to people in a drinks party or at church or in a prayer meeting or in the office tomorrow, it's an interesting one to pursue. The trouble with it is it's a term that is notoriously difficult to pin down. It just means different things to different people. 
But we all have a spirituality, whether we are conscious, it, conscious of it or not. And, what we, and that is the lead-in now to Titus chapter 3. And this comes home particularly to us as he says in the opening word there, we borrow the first word uh, in chapter 3 in verse 1, remind the people. I think I can truly say then, remind them of their true spirituality. Remind them of what's happened to them and what they are to become. And be sure the process isn't going to stop. Okay then. Paul is saying to Titus three things here in these verses. The first is this. How you used to live. How did you, how, what was your lifestyle before you came to faith? At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy and so on and so forth. Not a very nice picture in varying degrees. Knowing and saying everybody was all like that. But it is a description, a very vivid one, of our society. And certainly of the society in Crete, which was a stopping off point for sailors and so on. And, and, and um, where, on the day of Pentecost, if you were to see chapter 2 and verse 11 in the book of Acts, you'll see that men from Crete were present. And these people who heard that mighty sermon, the outpouring of the Spirit with tongues and fire, went back to where they were. And they said, you've got to hear this. And so a church is formed. Sometimes churches are formed without missionaries. I was interviewing uh, Kim Moforth about Sarah, who came to faith without hearing a preacher. That would be quite good, wouldn't it? How you used to live. And how God can sovereignly work in people's lives. But you see, these Cretans were foolish. This is not politically correct. Look in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12. Even their own prophets have said, Cretans are always liars, evil, brutes, lazy gluttons. That's not very nice, is it? And then... Just to add insult to injury, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke. And it's a word that we'll come to later on. What, do we, what does this mean, the word foolish, here? The literal meaning is moronic. Don't be a moron. That's not very nice either, is it? That's how people lived, with a sort of moronic lifestyle. Mindless. Uh, Neil and I attended the uh, debate over street pastors. And one of the things about young people who are full of alcohol on Friday and Saturday night is that their behavior and lifestyle is mindless. And they need to be preserved from themselves in, in the way that they cast off restraint. So it's moronic, it's foolish, it's mindless, it's deceived, it's being enslaved. And the most basic deception of all within this is this. That people think that God, if there is, is irrelevant or Jesus, if the gospel is true, is a killjoy. That's how we used to live. And 
whatever spirituality, well, at best, it's on the peripheral of our lives. Secondly, how we used to live, how we're saved, how we came to faith. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, the sheer extravagant generosity of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And there's a lovely play here, as we shall see in a moment. He saved us, not because, but because. Do you see it in the verse? Look carefully at it. It's quite uh, interesting, isn't it? Um, There it is. He saved us, verse 5, not because of righteous things we had done. Indeed, the opposite is the case. But because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's our saviour. He's our saviour. We're not that far from Christmas, are we? When we think of, behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. To you, a saviour is born. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people. He's a saviour. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to know this transition that how we were saved, that God in his kindness saved us. Not because of us, indeed be, despite us, but because of his grace and his mercy. I've come to faith. Maybe because somebody asked me, are you truly a Christian? That's how I came to faith. That's how I came to faith. I'd heard hundreds of sermons. But I came to faith because one Christian asked me, are you a believer? It's not always up to the preacher, is it? What is evangelism? People reaching people. Ordinary people reaching ordinary people. And so you look at, look at these verses again. You see in verse 5... He he saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out copiously, generously, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's my Savior. Is he yours? Really? Really yours? I know I don't deserve it. It's not because of me, it's despite me. It's because of his mercy and his grace. He's intervened in my life. Remind people of these things. Remind them of what God has done. God is their saviour. And then the third thing, you see there's a progression. How, how we used to live, how we are saved, how we behave. You can't separate that, can you? It's the point we were making earlier. It's a recurring theme. And, and look in verse 2. You see, we are to live lives. We are to be ready to do what is good. And to, sl- and, and to slander no one. At the end of the first session of the day of prayer before communion, uh, Rob gave us an opportunity to share. Oh, and, and, and Ken very movingly said, my confession, I have favorites. God has no favorites. He doesn't. He has no favorites. I do. And I need to be more like him. It's easy to slag people off if you don't like them. Slander, no one. Even if they deserve it. Slander, no one. To be peaceable and considerate. To show true humility towards all people. 
That's how we're to behave. We could paraphrase it, couldn't, couldn't we? How do we come into this world? Fragile, handle with care, handle with prayer. That's what we are like. And in such a fractured, disordered society as Crete was, with that sort of thing going on, don't become part of it. It's the counterculture. Those are the things we are to remind each other of a true spirituality that is based upon Jesus who is our Savior. That's our spirituality. Well then, let's come to verse 8. How do we relate then? That wonderful transaction of grace has been taking place. I think this is a very crucial verse. In, in, in verse, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things. Emphasize them. Underline them. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things, what are they like? Excellent and profitable for each other, for everyone. As we relate to each other. I'm a great advocate of the government-sponsored, uh, it's not a charity, it's an institution called Relate. And how marriages, not always, but often have been healed and worked through because couples have grown apart. But that, of course, can happen not just in a marriage, in a friendship, in a church, within wider families. And this is a very crucial, crucial verse. Stress these things, it says. Stress them. In other words, the greater our true knowledge of God is the deeper our true relationship with one another. The thing actually that we crave for. And it is very easy, as we shall see in a moment, to get stuck particularly in church life. Stress these things. Underscore them. Emphasize them. Why? Well, when you take these things to heart from verses 7 and 8, there will be at least two things. First of all, a renewed motivation. You see, look at it again, verse 8. So, if you, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. It isn't now duty, it's devotion. I can do things out of duty and so can you. But wait a minute, maybe my heart isn't in it. But when I devote myself to doing this, I take my emotions, my heart, by the scruff of the neck, say, I am going to do it. And I'm no longer going to be difficult. Making a point all the time about church polity and the way the, the, the elders lead and the deacons decide and that sort of thing. A renewed motivation to devote ourselves to doing good. That's what we are to do. I wonder if spiritually you've just lost your get up and go. A renewed motivation, doing what is good. And the second thing is a restored vision of seeing the good. You have it in verse 8. What's the outcome of it? Well, just try it. 
The outcome of it is this. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Excellent and profitable. I think we can truly say this is excellent in the way it relates to God, in the way it relates to our Savior, and it is profitable in the way we relate to one another. And this is the point of, of our verse. Just turn to Philippians 4, just to see this. It's interesting how there's a connection here with what we were, what we were saying this morning. Just look at this. These things that are profitable and excellent in the outworking of our faith. And so, in Philippians 4 and verse 5, finally, brothers, look at this. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And then he just goes a bit further. He says, you know those sermons, you know those Bible studies, you know those issues, whatever you've learned or seen in me, now then, reduce what you know and put it into practice. Don't simply be the type of Christian who accumulates knowledge. Even if you know a little, put it into practice. If you know much, put it into practice. Put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Do you see that? And lastly, it's not meant to spoil the sermon what about this idea of rebuke to challenge one another? Well, avoidance strategy sometimes is the best, but that's not always possible. So verses 9 and 10, as we try to uh, conclude this living before a watching world. Doesn't the, doesn't the world love to see the church fighting and squabbling and say, isn't that the church? Well, sometimes... If you have to have a fight, be sure it's about something really important, not trivia. Something that is actually inconsequential. So verses 9 to 11, what, what's this idea of rebuke? Well, this is not a threat from the outside. It's the classic inner division, the lack of unity. It's, it's the tension from within the church, within the fellowship. And there's this danger of disintegrating and fragmenting and dividing. In 2 Timothy, just one page, just turn back one page and you'll come to it. 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is a great 3.16, isn't it? Here it is. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. Well, we're, we're doing that now. It's useful for teaching. Rebuking. Well, I don't know. Am I doing that? Or correcting, maybe. Or training in righteousness. So that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. You see, it's always got a practical outworking. And it's not one-upmanship. I'm going to rebuke. And if ever you enjoy doing it, even if it's as a parent, enjoying discipline your children, well, that's very wrong. Even if they deserve to be disciplined. There are some people who are like evangelical rottweilers. They tear the flock apart. They enjoy doing it. They like quarreling. There are some people who are predisposed to doing that. And Paul here is saying you shouldn't do that. Avoid that. You see, you avoid it. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments and quarrels about the law. Why? Well, because they're useless. That's why. It's a waste of time. And they are exceedingly unprofitable. 
It's interesting, this verse 10. It doesn't mean that you don't have anything to do with this person, but it says, look, if you can't get anywhere, well, then just avoid it. That's the point. They may be believers, but if, you, if you're at loggerheads, just avoid it. Some relationships, I am convinced, can only survive if you stay superficial. What a statement to make. It's a very sad statement. But sometimes, in rare situations, it's the best. In other words, if you want to avoid falling out, don't fall in. Avoid it. This is a very down-to-earth practical finish. But it's the challenge that we need to face within our fellowships. So let's conclude if we think that here is Paul saying these things need to be taught, these things need to be worked out, handed on to the next generation. Three sentences to conclude. The Lord has chosen us to be witnesses before a watching world. We are not perfect. We know that. Hopefully we don't say we are. But, these three things. Because the world is dark and without hope, Jesus calls us to be light bearers. We bear the light of Jesus Christ. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's interesting that uh, this term lighthouse has come back into vogue. I, I was, he was mentioning it yesterday at the day of prayer. And um, it's a great, um, almost become a national organization of children, bringing together churches with one desire to present the gospel to children. Half a century ago, there you are, I remember preschool being taught, be a lighthouse for Jesus, be a lighthouse shining bright, send a beacon out in the land of doubt and let's be a light for him. I want you to go to school to be a lighthouse. Not far from where we live is Mumble's lighthouse and it shines out into into the, into the darkness of the night so ships can come and avoid pollution and collision. Let your light so shine before people in a dark world. That is surely the application. And the second one is this, because the world is desperate for genuine, real love, we are called to be love givers. Yes, we, we are light bearers. We bear the light. We are to be love givers. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men. Do you see the practical outlook? It's got to be there. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you have this kind of love, that you're love givers because Jesus is your saviour. And lastly, because the world doubts Genuine faith and is very cynical towards it. Jesus calls us to be respect earners in the workplace. Be a respect earner, not a demander of respect. That's easy. But earn it. Earn it when the pressure is on. Respect earners. So you come back to this key verse. This 
Verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Be a community of people as well. Of respect earners so that the people around when their life is falling apart, they might say, I need to go, I, I, I know some of those people, and I've heard about their faith. And their faith is true, and authentic, and genuine. I think I'll go and inquire. Some of us can build a bridge of kindness into people's heart, so that Jesus can walk over it, and have an encounter with people in need. We need to be ready to doing what is good. That is our high and holy calling. Living before a watching world. We're going to sing our final hymn. And uh, it's one of these hymns that has um, theology and devotion. I chose it deliberately because it, it, it makes these wonderful statements. Just, just look at the first verse, for instance. He's speaking about the incarnation. But what is so vitally important, following each of these statements of truth, of theology, if you like, there's the heart response. Worthy, O Lamb of God, adored, that every tongue should call you Lord. Jesus, the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, God manifestly seen and heard, heaven's beloved one. Look at verse 3, true image of the infinite whose essence is concealed, brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. What is that? But the coming of God into our lives as our Savior. What's our response? Worthy, O Lamb of God adored. So it's, it's a lovely balance, which is what the, the attempt of the sermon was to be. Yes, we, 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 we know the truth, but we need to work it out in our lives. And that's the great challenge before a watching world. Well, let's stand and sing it together.